Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And you're about to get your news on. Derek, let's start with Saudi Israel relations. Yeah, our friends the Saudis are doing, you know, diplomatic wheeling and dealing. We talked last week about the possibility of normalizing relations with Israel. Uh, they hit maybe a little bit of a, a speed bump or possibly. There's some bigger plan at work here. But uh, this week, the Saudis appointed their ambassador to Jordan, Naefa Asuderi, uh, as the, their non-resident ambassador in Palestine, which really just formalizes a role that he's already played. The kingdom runs its Palestinian affairs out of its Jordanian embassy. Anyway, they also named him consul general in Jerusalem, which to which the Israeli government immediately issued a statement smacking that down and suggesting that uh, the Saudis will never have a consul general in Jerusalem because Jerusalem is, of course, uh, the capital of the Jewish state and will never be capital of a Palestinian state, uh, according to the Israelis, at least. So they refused, essentially, to allow the Saudis to put even an office, like a temporary office, I think, for this person in Jerusalem. Now, I don't know exactly what's going on here. There may be, this may be a... Oh, good. good uh, what no worries. I know exactly what it, what's going on. <laughs> well, maybe what it seems like on the surface, which is just a flat-out dispute, the Saudis uh, appointed this guy and, and gave him this title of Consul General in Jerusalem, and the Israelis were unhappy with that, and so they've butted heads over it. It may, on the other hand, be a cunning attempt to soften the ground for the Saudis to go ahead and normalize relations with Israel by showing that they care so much about the Palestinian cause and they're not going to throw the Palestinians under the bus. Of course, they are. Uh, they will, at the drop of a hat, throw the Palestinians under the bus. So uh, cynical, but, but Derek. This is a, a sort of demonstration <laughs> of how much they care and they're you know struggling with the Israelis to uh, to get something done here. So um, you know, I, I don't know what to make of it, but it's a it's a potentially interesting, I think, development in light of all the other things that have been going on on this front. Uh, let's talk about the potential Sunni-Shia rapprochement between Saudi <laughs> and Iran. <laughs> yeah, you may be overstating things a little bit there, but uh, that that process is continuing. The Saudis, I think we, we mentioned, opened their uh, embassy and uh, reopened their embassy in Tehran. I believe they have also now reopened their consulate in Mashhad. Uh, Hossein Amir Abdullahian, the, the foreign minister of Iran, was in Saudi Arabia on Thursday. He met with his counterpart, Prince Faisal bin Farhan al-Saud, uh, and they had what seems to have been a fairly cordial talk. It's unclear what they talked about. Amir Abdullahian characterized the talks as successful and said that they had good discussions over a broad range of issues, which tells you exactly nothing. But the fact that he was there and they met and, you know, nobody came to blows or anything, I guess, uh, suggests that it was all fine. The big item that's still kind of up in the air, I guess, in terms of this uh, diplomatic thaw is uh, the, an invitation 
that King Salman, the Saudi ruler, at least nominal Saudi ruler, uh, extended some time back to Iranian President Ebrahim Raisi to visit the kingdom. Raisi has not, ex- I mean, he's sort of accepted it in principle. He said that he will definitely be going at some point, but he hasn't committed to actually making the trip yet. And they, they it seems like they probably discussed that, but didn't come to any uh, kind of decision about if or when Raisi might do that. Let's stay with Iran and talk about the U.S.-Iran prisoner deal. Uh, Yes. Uh, As we mentioned last week, there is a deal in place. Uh, There's been some more details around that deal that have come to light, uh, really came to light, you know, in the day or two after uh, last week's news update. But uh, it's broadly uh, what we talked about last week. Iran is going to release five U.S. nationals it's been holding in in custody. Uh, Four of them had been in the notorious Evian prison. They've been placed under house arrest. The fifth was already under house arrest. Uh, They will be allowed to leave Iran eventually in return for the release of uh, a a number of Iranians. I've seen five, although I haven't seen a confirmation of that, in U.S. custody and uh, the unfreezing of somewhere between $6 billion and $7 billion in Iranian money that is currently locked inside South Korean banks by U.S. sanctions. Uh, The process is going to take a while in large part because there is a a fair amount of concern on the part of the South Korean government that if they move, the idea is that they will take this $6 billion to $7 billion, which is currently in South Korean won, they will convert it to euros and then deposit it in a cuttery bank institution or a number of Qatari banks, perhaps, where the Qatari government will have oversight to sort of uh, make sure the Iranians are spending on uh, allowed uh, permitted goods. The South Koreans are worried that doing that all in one fell swoop would tank the won would actually take tank their currency. Uh, and so they want to do it piecemeal in small transfers. And that's why it's going to take a while. The Iranians, uh, understandably, aren't going to go through with their part of the deal. Uh, until that money is in place. So it it could take a little while for this all to come to fruition. Uh, There was some controversy over the weekend. The Iranian foreign ministry issued a statement on Friday saying, uh, rejecting the idea that they're going to be constrained in any way uh, in terms of what these funds are used for, that the cutteries are going to have any oversight, uh, kind of rejecting that, that piece of the reporting. But Iranian officials over the weekend then specified that the Iranians would only be using this money to purchase what they called non-sanctioned goods, which uh, essentially boils down to things like food, medicine, basic necessities that technically are not sanctioned by the U.S. Purchase is technically not sanctioned by the U.S., although sanctions uh, knock on indirect effects uh, always prevent those kind of transactions from going through. Uh, so this pot of money will be set aside for that kind of stuff. Thank you, Derek. Let's talk about some good news finally, and that's North Korea's arms buildup. I'm just yes. kidding. <laughs> uh, no, it's you know good for them, really. I mean, you know, the plucky North Koreans. Kim Kim Jong Un has been uh, making the rounds over the last several weeks, kind of visiting defense facilities, contractors, you know, factories, et cetera, and sort of cajoling everybody to get their uh, asses moving, I guess, uh, making more stuff for the North Koreans to shoot at somebody in the event of a war. Uh, I'm, I'm not, I mean, he hasn't 
explained any of this. I mean, not, it's not like Kim Jong-un ever explains anything that he does. Uh, and of course, the speculation goes into overdrive in the, in the U.S. and Western media about what could it all mean. Um, I, I, my suspicion is that, you know, there's, there's a fairly substantial amount of evidence at this point that North Korea has been supplying weapons to Russia for use in Ukraine. So my suspicion is that they're just running out of stuff like everybody else is, like the West is running out of stuff, supplying the Ukrainian military, North Korea, even with its, you know, very substantial capacity for churning out things like artillery shells, somewhat basic uh, materials that Western countries don't really specialize in much anymore. But despite even even with their sort of uh, very significant industrial capabilities in that regard, uh, my suspicion is they're just starting to run short of stuff and, and Kim would like to see those stockpiles replenished. Uh, and so, uh, without admitting that that's what it is, because he still won't admit that, uh, you know, that he hasn't acknowledged supporting the Russians in that way, openly, at least this is his way of kind of cajoling everybody to, to get moving. Derek, do you think if everyone smoked weed, we'd still have war? Uh, I mean, it would depend on uh, the quality of the weed and, and, you know, everybody has a different reaction. So I don't know. I don't know if you can make a blanket statement like that, frankly. I'm glad I asked you that before I wrote my piece on it. All right. Let's talk about the status of the U.S. defector to North Korea. Friend of the yeah, pod. So <laughs> people may be aware that Travis King, a U.S. soldier who had been stationed in South Korea and had been in jail in South Korea for some sort of disciplinary infraction, I think getting into uh, some kind of criminal mischief, ran across the demilitarized zone. He kind of put himself in a tour uh, of the demilitarized zone dressed in, you know, civilian clothing, whatever, uh, last month, and then ran across the DMZ into North Korea. Uh, The Korean Central News Agency, the official media outlet in North Korea, reported just this week on King's status. This was the first real public acknowledgement that the North Korean government has made that King is in North Korea. I don't, I hesitate to say in North Korean custody, although probably that's true. We, we, we don't really know, but the, the KCNA reported that he had come across, they said, a uh, quote, he, he confessed that he had decided to come over to the DPRK as he harbored ill feelings against inhuman maltreatment and racial discrimination within the U.S. Army, end quote. So that's uh, that's what they're reporting. Uh, the Biden administration then, uh, I believe on Wednesday, said that it is working to free King from North Korean custody. They, they uh, are treating this like he's a prisoner, essentially, in North Korea. I don't think there's any evidence of that. And given that he, by all accounts, crossed the border voluntarily, I'm unclear what freeing him from North Korean custody would actually look like here, uh, if he would even want to come back to the U.S., if he was given that option. Uh, but this is something that's going to linger, it sounds like, and, and uh, you know, uh, is being characterized somewhat bizarrely, I think, by the Biden administration, although, of course, they want to portray anything having to do with North Korea in the worst possible light. But uh, they seem to be ignoring the part where King voluntarily defected to North Korea and treating this as a, a prisoner situation, which is uh, uh, not doesn't seem to fit the facts. No, Derek, it certainly does not. Uh, let's talk about Sudan. Yes, uh, the war in Sudan is continuing. The conflict, I shouldn't call it a war. Let's say conflict in Sudan between the military and the rapid support forces is continuing 
more or less as it has been. But there were reports over the weekend, and this is somewhat disturbing, reports of new fighting in South Darfur State and particularly in Nyala, the capital uh, of South Darfur State. Now, if you've been following this conflict, you know most of the fighting has remained in and around the, the capital area, which is Khartoum and the other two cities at the, the confluence of the Nile Rivers. But there has been fairly sustained, although I guess a bit more sporadic, fighting in West Darfur State. That continually threatens to expand to other parts of Darfur, and South Darfur has been has seen the heaviest, I guess, of that spillover fighting. Uh, there are a lot of understandable concerns here that if the conflict widens in Darfur, it's going to start to look more and more like the Darfur war that began in 2003, or really the Darfur genocide. Uh, the Arab tribes that perpetrated that genocide, the Janjaweed militias, are closely aligned with the Rapid Support Forces. Indeed, the Rapid Support Forces was uh, sort of drawn from the ranks of the Janjaweed. They were, you know, then given official status within the government. Uh, so the RSF has a lot of, uh, has, a, has a big support network uh, in Sudan with a track record of carrying out massacres on the civilian kind of indigenous populations of Darfur. Uh, so there is a lot of concern. Any Anytime reports of fighting expanding in Darfur uh, come out, th- there's a lot of concern that that's where things are heading. Thanks, Derek. Let's talk about the intervention um, in Niger. Yes. So there was uh, there was some indication late last week that uh, everybody might give diplomacy a chance. Uh, the Nigerian government sent a couple of uh, delegations to Niger, uh, religious leaders, I think, in one. And um, they may have been both. Both of them may have been uh, religious leaders. I'm not sure. But they indicated that the junta in Niger had had said it wants to negotiate with the economic community of West African states. It wants to find a peaceful resolution to their tensions. So things were looking maybe a bit, uh, uh, you know, ticking a bit up if you're uh, not a fan of war in in uh, West Africa or anywhere else. That seemed to dissipate over the weekend when the junta announced, and this was on Sunday, kind of after all this uh, warm and fuzzy stuff had been happening, uh, that it intends to put the former president of Niger, Mohamed Bazoum, uh, on trial, or I should say, I say former, he still recognizes the legitimate president by ECOWAS and uh, other international players. They intend to put him on trial. They, they, they claim he committed, you know, high treason and uh, undermined Nigerian security, et cetera, et cetera, all these offenses. Uh, that seems to have taken the the bloom back off the rose. And so, uh, a meeting of the military heads of the remaining ECOWAS states that had been scheduled to take place on uh, Saturday, which was postponed in order to, again, give these diplomatic initiatives a, an opening to work. Uh, that was rescheduled then uh, for Thursday, today, really, I guess, as we're recording this. And uh, they're meeting essentially to finalize, I think, whatever plan they have in place to intervene. Now, ECOWAS has said it, it is calling up what it calls its standby force. ECOWAS doesn't have a standby force, so they need to form this, they need to put this together on the fly, and it's going to take a while. So there's still, uh, you know, nothing I don't think is imminent here. It would be surprising if they're able to to move on a, a timescale of, let's say, days as opposed to weeks. But they do seem to have commitment. The, the f- first announcement I've seen come out of this uh, meeting, which is supposed to continue for two days, uh, is that they've got commitment from all ECOWAS member states except for 
the three or the four that are under military rule, which is Guinea, Mali, Burkina Faso, and Niger. And Cape Verde uh, is the other one that, that says it won't participate in a, a regional intervention. But the, the rest of the, the gang is apparently on board with this. Uh, how many troops everybody's going to commit and what that's going to look like, again, is still very much uh, up in the air. But it does seem like they're moving slowly but inexorably down the road toward an intervention here. I, I don't see any uh, obvious off-ramp at this point, especially, as I said, uh, after that announcement that the, the junta plans to put Bazoom on trial that seems to have shifted everything into another gear. Thank you, Derek. So let's move now to Russia, Ukraine, and talk about the Russian ruble, which has seen better days. Yes, uh, the Russian ruble uh, this week dropped below 100 per U.S. dollar uh, in trading. Now, it didn't stay there. Um, I think it's come back up into the high 90s. Uh, but that's the lowest the ruble has been at since the earliest weeks of the Ukraine war when Western sanctions really uh, hit. Uh, you know, in the immediacy of them and sort of the, the shock in terms of uh, the size and scope of them uh, took their toll in, in the currency market. The ruble then rebounded as it became apparent that sanctions weren't really doing all that much damage, uh, at least not in the short term to the Russian economy. The ruble rebounded and the Russian central bank kind of stepped in to strengthen it a bit. It's been, after coming back into like the 50s to 60s uh, per dollar range, uh, toward the end of last year, it's been on a steady slide again uh, over the course of this year. And as I say, it's it's gotten back into triple digits at least a couple of times this week. The the Russian official Russian policy current currency policy uh, favors a strong ruble. Now that said, uh, there's been some advantage to the Russians in having a, a relatively weak ruble because it means that every dollar in foreign oil exports or foreign oil sales or, or gas sales that comes back to Russia buys more rubles, which is not necessarily the worst thing uh, for the Russian government. But uh, it seems like the milestone, the triple digit milestone has kind of uh, triggered something in Moscow, the, the feeling that maybe this is uh, the decline has gotten out of hand. So the central bank raised interest rates uh, on Tuesday uh, the, uh, uh, you know, the, the government has taken a few other actions. The bank in particular has taken a few, a uh, few other actions to try to arrest the ruble's decline. And of course, there are downsides certainly to a weak ruble. It, it makes things more costly for ordinary Russians. Uh, it may make the pain of the war come home a little bit more than, uh, the Russian government might like. It makes it more expensive for the Russians to, purchase weapons to pay soldiers so it's it's all uh you know adding to the cost of the war and maybe uh they're at a tipping point where those the advantage i talked about in terms of uh energy exports doesn't outweigh the cost uh of of a weak ruble at this level so uh something to watch in terms of uh the russian economy i think and let's update uh let's you update us on the ukraine counter offensive and how it's been progressing Yes, the Ukrainians captured another village in Donetsk Oblast on Wednesday, Rojina. Uh, the Russian military announced the day before that it was withdrawing from that village. This village now gives them a foothold on the eastern side of the small Mokriyali River. 
which could uh, help advance the counteroffensive uh, to some degree. They're continuing, of course, to march south and try to get to the Red Sea and cut the Russian position in Ukraine in, in two. Uh, at the same time, there is a Russian counter-counter-offensive, perhaps, uh, in Kharkiv Oblast to the north. They are attacking the city of Kupiansk. Uh, Ukrainian officials acknowledged on Wednesday that that fight is getting pretty dire uh, for their forces in the city. So that may be something uh, to pay attention to as well. The other uh, thing of note that's going on here is, of course, the uh, ongoing controversy over the Black Sea. Uh, since the Russians pulled out of the Black Sea Grain Initiative, the hand-wringing about what we're going to do with Ukrainian grain exports, et cetera, et cetera. The Ukrainians announced a couple of weeks ago that they were opening a commercial shipping lane in the Black Sea, but that they couldn't guarantee that any ship in that lane would not get blown out of the water by the Russians. So naturally, uh, there haven't been a lot of takers uh, to uh, try that lane out. There was one ship, however, that departed Odessa on Wednesday, the port of Odessa, to uh, try this corridor out. The, the vessel has apparently been stuck in Odessa since the start of the war. So it, it, I think they're some, somewhat desperate to get the ship out of the Black Sea. That ship, as far as I know, has made it without incident to Istanbul. So uh, the corridor did work in this case, and we don't know what communications were going on back and forth between uh, the Russians and Ukrainians, or more likely the Russians and Turkey, which has taken it upon itself to uh, to sort of act as the, the guarantor for Black Sea shipping security. But that one ship that attempted this crossing has, has apparently made it successfully. So more ships that are currently stuck uh, at Ukrainian ports may try to do this. I doubt you're going to see any new ships enter the Black Sea under the non-promise from the Ukrainians that they could have safe passage. So, uh, But we'll see. We'll see. Uh, the, the, the work to try and find an alternative to the Black Sea Grain Initiative continues. The U.S. is reportedly uh, in talks with Romania to try and arrange some kind of thing where the Ukrainians would ship the grain up the Danube River and then it would be brought by rail to Romanian ports and shipped out from there. Uh, there's a lot of moving pieces with that. And one of them being that the Russian military keeps uh, bombarding those Danube River ports to, to try and render them useless. So, uh, you know, there's still a lot of, a uh, lot of kind of machinations going on, I think, around uh, what to do about the, the grain with the late summer autumn harvest season upon us, what to do about all this Ukrainian grain that's otherwise going to be just stuck there. Thank you, Derek. And actually, before we move on, there's something that I wanted to tell you. I was I was idly Googling us earlier. And did you know that we're amongst the, the best Derek podcasts, along with Plain English with Derek Thompson and Outsource Accelerator podcast with Derek Gallimore? We are amongst the best Derek podcasts well, we're, literally I mean, we're on Earth. Derek podcasts in the world. Uh, <laughs> Player FM. <laughs> they they have announced that. So that's big news, everyone. And you, you heard it here first. All right. Let's go to now the Anton Chigurh of, of candidates, this guy in Argentina. <laughs> tell me what's going He's on. He's a strange looking dude. Yeah, that's Anton Chigurh is about him. right. Uh, so Argentina had its presidential primary, or well, it's, it's primary election on Sunday, the presidential election is the one everybody was watching. Uh, Argentine primary elections are heavily watched because... Uh, the electorate in the primary almost 
completely not not quite there's always some variability but uh it, it very well uh, very effectively mirrors the general electorate voting is more or less mandatory all the parties have to participate whether or not they're uh having a, an actual primary election uh they still have to participate in the the voting uh, their pr- ability to participate in the general election for some of the smaller parties, whether they're allowed to run for uh, congressional representation, things like that, uh, can depend upon uh, their primary results. So there's a lot of incentive to get people out to vote. Uh, so these are they're, they're like a, a, a if you want to look at it uh, as a sort of hyper poll uh, of the general election, they're they're really uh, you know generally well. Uh, widely watched and and given a lot of weight where, you know, prime, you might think primary election cares. Uh, but the interesting thing that happened on Sunday was the uh, winner, uh, quote unquote, there's not really a, a winner in this sense, but the winner of the presidential vote, uh, the, the guy who finished first was the Libertarian Party far right candidate Javier Millet. Uh, and he took uh, he took about thirty point five percent of the vote, which was much higher than he'd been polling. Now he'd been polling, uh, you know, fairly robustly for a, a relatively fringe, at least until Sunday, candidate. But this exceeded his polling, uh, and he put him uh, two and a half points ahead of the center right opposition, the Together for Change coalition, and three and a half points ahead of the ruling Peronist. Union for the Homeland Coalition, which had 27%. Uh, both of these mainstream options, uh, you know, this is viewed as a, a somewhat dismal result to finish uh, behind the, the, this uh, libertarian guy. Uh, so he, you know, he sort of launched himself into the conversation in terms of a serious contender uh, to become Argentina's next president. I, I think he still has an uphill path, Um the 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 main event the, the general election is on October 22nd uh the m- mainstream coalitions the, the together for change and union for the homeland have some time to try and you know reverse this this problem that they seem to have and and get uh, more voters uh to their side as i said the 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 primary electorate is not entirely uh does not entirely mirror the general electorate and gen- uh, usually the general electorate is a little more favorable to large parties, so that are kind of the the main uh, mainstream centrist parties. So that that could help together for change and, and or union for the homeland a bit. So I'm not sure that Millet is going to win uh, the first round uh, on October 22nd, and then you get past that, and it really looks like what, what what's going to happen here is a a runoff between maybe Millet and one of the uh, the candidate of one of these other two or one of these two kind of center right center left coalitions that runoff may really uh, favor the more mainstream candidate Millet may may struggle to kind of broaden his appeal to more moderate voters in a in a head to head matchup especially i think if together for change which nominated uh, an ex security minister patricia bullrich uh if if she's the the other candidate in that runoff she's fairly conservative so she could really eat into a lot of Millet's support and then I think you'll have uh, more moderate voters kind of just going to her because uh, Millet has been identified as somewhat uh, of a fringe candidate so uh, I still think he's got a, a, a fairly uphill battle to actually 
be elected president. But, you know, people comparing him already to Donald Trump. He's the Argentine Donald Trump. He's the Argentine Jair Bolsonaro. You know, these are, I think it's a little premature for that. But, you know, again, certainly a, a surprise result and one that indicates, I think, a lot of fatigue and hostility toward the mainstream of, of Argentine politics on uh, both sides of center. This is why we're among the best Derek podcasts. Uh, let's conclude with an update on the new Cold War and a uh, friend of the pod, Joe Biden, hosting South Korea and Japan's summit. Yes, uh, he's uh, he's at Camp David, folks. We love Camp David. Camp David is where all the best agreements happen. Uh, he has uh, Joe Biden has invited uh, Yoon Suk Yeol, the president of South Korea, and the prime minister of Japan, Kishida Fumio, to Camp David for a summit uh, in which he's trying to build on some of the recent friendliness. Uh, between those two, those two men personally and between the two countries that have had somewhat frayed relations over the years. The U.S. would like nothing better than to cement a, an era of good feelings in the uh, South Korean-Japanese relationship, both because of uh, North Korea, because it tightens the, the regional alliance against North Korea, but mostly because it tightens up things when we're talking about China and the new Cold War. So Biden will be pressing them for some kind of, uh, I don't know about substantive uh, agreement, but some kind of commitment to put the, uh, let's say, very checkered past, Japan's very checkered past on the Korean Peninsula behind them and and establish a, a more robust alliance of some sort. So, Derek, we did it. Americans are even more pissed than they've been. Let's conclude with new polling about U.S. animosity toward China. Yeah, people are, are apparently not listening to this show despite its popularity with the, the Derek, pro-Derek crowd. <laughs> with the, the people uh, who follow all Derek's. <laughs> yeah. Oil uh, Derek's, people Derek's, they're into it all. Whatever. I mean, whatever it takes, right? Uh, now, there was a new poll that was released this week from Reuters Ipsos that found that, um, you know, all the rhetoric about China is working. Roughly two thirds of U.S. voters uh, say they would favor a presidential candidate uh, who, quote, supports additional tariffs on Chinese imports, end quote, uh, a, a similar percentage, uh, which included majorities of both Republicans and Democrats, uh, agreed that the U.S. government quote, needs to do more to prepare for military threats from China, end quote. So, um, you know, the, the new Cold War seems to have be playing well with the American public. And, and I think it'll give the Biden administration more leeway to continue what it's been doing, export controls, kind of these anti-China military alliances in the uh, Pacific region. Uh, so it's, it's, it, it's going to give Biden or, you know, whomever, may be president in, let's say, 2025. We'll have uh, uh, a, a fair amount of public opinion behind them to ratchet up hostilities. Uh, now, interestingly, uh, and this is, I know, something that you've talked about, Danny, only 38% uh, said that they were, of the, the respondents to this poll said that they would support deploying U.S. forces to defend Taiwan in the case of a mainland invasion of Taiwan. Uh, so that's that's something to consider as we uh, maybe careen toward the situation where that's going to be relevant. 
Derek, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And we'll see you all soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.